It's a new year. It's Friday, and that means it's time for Friday Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua and I am your host and on Fridays here at Radical Personal Finance we do a live Q&A. Got callers waiting on the phone line to go there and anything that you want to talk about we talk about. like to join for a Friday Q&A call like today's in the future, I would love to have you. I screen these calls, I screen the callers to these calls based upon uh, support of the show as a patron. Uh, so these calls are open on Fridays to people who support the show on Patreon. You can do that at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Again, that is RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. If you sign up to become a patron there at the appropriate level, you will uh, gain access to the uh, Friday Q&A call-in information, the time, and the phone number and you'll be able to join uh, for a call like this. Today, we go first to Shiv in the state of Washington. Shiv, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. How can I serve you today? Uh, Hey, Joshua. Uh, Firstly, Happy New Year to you and all the listeners. Um, I'm a long-time listener and first-time caller. I really appreciate all the work that you do. Uh, My question is related to home affordability. we got serious about buying home a couple of months back, and at that point, I used some online calculators to see, you know, how much home I can afford based on my salary and the surplus for down payment. I got multiple numbers based on different tests like income test, cash test, or debt test, and then I picked the lowest number from that and started search hunting home. Uh, after going through the process of searching and putting offers for a couple of homes, we realized that. The kind of homes that we like are a bit expensive, and on top of that, there is bidding war going on, which which does not help. Uh, I I want to buy a home that my family will like, my wife will like, and uh, at the same time, I don't want to commit a financial mistake. So uh, when I look at my income and surplus, I think I can afford costlier homes than the standard guidelines. When I say standard guidelines, I mean uh, 20% down payment and uh, mortgage payment not more than 28%, that kind of stuff. But I want to know your opinion on how much stretch beyond these guidelines one can make without committing a financial mistake. What's your household annual income? 120K. And are you the sole income earner of your household or does your wife also earn an income? I'm the sole income Okay. And um, do you have, uh, run me through your assets real quick. Do you have some savings, emergency funds, and cash that is saved for the purpose of buying a house? Yes. Uh, so I have around 100K of cash. I also have around 200K in stocks, which I can use. Those are outside of my 401K. And how much is in your 401K? Uh, around 150 Okay. Do you owe anybody any money? Do you have any debts right now? No. Okay. No. And so you have about 150000 in your 401k, which you're contributing to. You have 200000 in stocks that you could sell. You have about 100000 in cash. And outside of those savings and investment assets, do you have any other major assets? 
not here in the U.S. Okay. No. Great. And uh, you don't have any debts. So what price no. range of house are you considering purchasing? So I was thinking somewhere around 500K, but uh, with a single family home, with three bedrooms and all in our area, I'll have to go, you know, like more than an hour of commute from my work to to get home in that price range. So if you, uh, if you, I don't want to. Right, hold on. So if you paid, if you bought a house for four hundred thousand dollars, you would be able to purchase a single family home in your local market, but that would come with a one hour commute. Yes, uh, and it's not four hundred thousand. It's more than five hundred thousand. More than five hundred thousand. Yes. Okay. So greater than five hundred thousand, and um, right now you and your wife are renting a, an apartment or renting yes. a house. Yes, we are renting. And how much is your monthly rent currently? Uh, it's uh, fourteen hundred plus some utilities, so around fifteen hundred per month. If you bought the five hundred thousand dollar house, how much would you estimate your monthly payment to be on your uh, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance? I think it is going to be in the range of twenty seven hundred to three thousand. Okay. If you were to buy something closer, have you shopped for something closer to your work? <laughs> yes, I have, but uh, I can't. I can't afford. I mean. There are only condos uh, available in that price range, and we don't want to buy condos. We want something which uh, is like a detached home with a small backyard for our son to play and all that. You have one child currently? Yes. And how old is he? Three. So it, it's a hard question to answer, and here is the way that I would look at it. So mm-hmm. with regard to the affordability of the house, if your monthly payments are $3,000 per month and your mm-hmm. monthly income is gross of about $10,000 per month, um, mm-hmm. I don't think that would be necessarily unaffordable, especially if you avoided any other form of debt. If you look at the way that people come up with these ratios and they say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from a calculation of a percentage of income, et cetera, y- and you look at it, you'll see that number one, there's not really any science to most of it. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. it's just primarily a matter of, of, uh, uh, of, of someone saying, well, this kind of works out. Uh, and you do have to account for all of your expenses, but if you can avoid uh, other debts, then I don't think it's necessarily unsafe for you to have a $3,000 a month uh, mortgage payment with a $10,000 a month gross income. I don't think it's unsafe. Now, if you started to add to that student loan payments, uh, if you started to add to that a couple of car payments, now all of a sudden you start to have your fixed expenses to be very high and you start to run into a much more dangerous territory with regard to your uh, to, to your ability to maintain your budget if times got tough. But if you have no debt and you have a $10,000 a month income, even if times got tough, if you, if you uh, went through a, a – you had a 20% pay cut or something like that because your company that you work for got into financial trouble, uh, or even if you lost your job, uh, you 
it's not a it's not an insane number. Now it certainly is a high number, but that's due to where you live. The fact that you have to pay in excess of five hundred thousand dollars to get a single family home, uh, and that's an hour outside of 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 your job, is is simply a sign of of where you live. So for, right. on the basis of affordability, would it be stupid to buy such a house? I don't think it would be stupid to buy such a house. I don't think it's necessarily dangerous. Again, as long as you are not, um, as long as you don't have a lot of other debts and uh, well, as long as you don't have a lot of other debts. And I think, of course, you should be careful because usually with purchasing a house, especially a single family house, it comes with all kinds of new expenses, which you'll have the opportunity to uh, to enjoy when you go through that. So make sure you set some cash aside and continue to be frugal. But everything about the sound of your voice and your calculation sounds to me like you're approaching it very carefully. Now, the bigger question is, is it the best thing to do at this point in time? That's what I would say is a bigger question. Uh, and, and I can... I can empathize very much with that struggle. So with regard to your employment situation, how long have you worked for the company that you work for, and does it seem stable at this point? Oh, yeah. I'm in tech, and I have been with my current company for five years. It's doing good. Do you expect your income to stay about the same, increase a little, or increase dramatically in the future? Increase a little, but not dramatically, I think. Have you pursued other opportunities in tech that are in cheaper cost of living areas? Uh, not no, not really. Okay. Actually, uh, I like the company and I like the city uh, town I live in right now. So I haven't. Um, if I like, I, I have talked to my wife about it, and we are like, if we want to change jobs, we'll change within within Seattle. So Seattle is the place I'm living right now. And, you might know the real estate prices here. Yeah, definitely. They're crazy. And so you intend to stay in Seattle. Uh, that's it. Fits your your goals. It fits your culture. And so you intend right. to stay in Seattle. Okay. Right. If you were to, when you and your wife talk about purchasing a single family house and moving out of the apartment that you live in now, what are the biggest mm-hmm. benefits that you're hoping to achieve? Uh, so. One thing is uh, we have family visiting from um, India or we have friends, so we need a place for them to, you know, uh, stay. So that's why we need a bigger place. Plus, uh, for our kid, we want a kind of small backyard. Uh, I think he, the place we have right now is kind of limited. He, my wife tends to do all these sort of activities and games with him. And she cannot enjoy uh, all those things in our current apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she will like to have some more space where she can, you know, uh, do different activities with him through which he learns and all that kind of stuff. Do you, uh, do you think that you and your wife may have more children in the future? Not likely. Okay. <laughs> I think one is enough for us. Okay. Well, uh, so how frequently does your family come from India, and how long do they stay with you? So my brother lives in Vancouver, which is about two hours or three hours from Seattle, and we keep uh, visiting every two months. And um, my family from India comes once a year. How long does your brother visit every two months? Uh it's so just over a weekend, so it's like two, three days. 
And how long does your family come, come on Friday? Mm-hmm. How long does your family come from India? Uh, they come if they come, they'll be for more than a month. Okay. Well, so I can empathize very much with the desire to change your living circumstances from an apartment to a house. Uh, in fact, I, in my family, we are currently in that situation where we live in a smaller uh, apartment. Uh, it's not a high-rise apartment. It's a duplex apartment. We have a, a small yard and a small outdoor space. But we moved in, and it's in a, a, a lower-income community. And we moved here to save money temporarily while, while I uh, transitioned to a new business. And it's certainly when you have children who start to reach a certain age, you start to really get to the point where it would be really nice to uh, uh, to have a little bit more space. There's a reason mm-hmm. why most people, when they start to have children, look to the suburbs with much more interest than they do when they don't have children. Uh, we have three young children, and definitely it's nice to have a place that has a backyard, and you can say, children, go outside, and you can supervise through the window, but you don't have to hear them when they reach that busy time of day, about 4 o'clock, and, and, and they just need to be sent outside. Um, that said, uh, you have your wife has one child, uh, and, it's, and your son is three years old. And so I think that, that uh, pressure is much smaller with one child who's three years old than it is with, say, three or four children who are six and seven and eight uh, when they start to be much more rambunctious. And I think you should think okay. carefully about, uh, about spending money just to get a little extra patch of grass um, for one child who's three years old. Now, my biggest concern is not financially um, because I think you could work out the finances. My biggest concern would be the cost to you of adding a two-hour daily commute to go to work and back um, and that cost on your family. In my mind, that would be essentially non-negotiable because if you could how, – how close do you live right now to your uh, – how close do you live right now to your job? I just four miles. So even with the traffic situation, it's uh, thirty yeah. minutes. Without traffic, it is ten minutes. If I were in your shoes, to me that would be the non-negotiable lifestyle um, choice, because I'm sure if that. I can, what's that? If I can, can if I can convince my wife that we should move. Right, but 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 think about this, okay? Um, if you do a survey, you're a researcher. Do a survey of how much time. Um, most children who live in the type of neighborhood that you're describing um, spend outside in their backyard. Individual children, one child, um, how much time they play outside by themselves. Well, I would imagine that it's actually not very much, especially if you're in Seattle where you have cold winters and you have lots of rainy days. You have to wait for a a bright day. And if your son is an only child, it's unlikely that he's going to spend a lot of time playing by himself in the backyard. Most children, especially at three and four, don't love to play alone. So that means that your wife is going to be the playmate or he's going to be with somebody else. And if your wife is going to be outside with him anyway – is it really that much more convenient to go in the backyard where you don't have any play equipment? Or is it a little bit more convenient to say, let's go on down to the local park and let's make this our afternoon excursion because she's going to be going and playing with him anyway? It's very different if you have three or four children and you say, hey, go outside and use the, the swing set. And they're outside and they can amuse themselves together for a couple of hours. It's That's different than mm-hmm. having one child. And I would look at the the cost to you as a father 
of having okay. adding a two-hour daily commute, and I would calculate it this way. If you live four miles from your office, you can mm-hmm. do that on your bicycle most of the time, and that gives you an extra hour and a half with your child. So whether you're home for an extra hour in the morning or you're home for an extra hour in the evening, if you take that and the benefits of that, even just to load them up and you take them to the park uh, in the afternoon, I frequently, that's that's often how, how, how I handle it with for my family, uh, with three young children in the house, it gets very, very wearing on a stay-at-home mom to handle three small children all day long. And there reaches a point in time around 4 o'clock in the afternoon when she's ready to be done. And so one of the things that I frequently will do is I'll load up the children at 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon, and I'll take them to the park and I t- and get them out of the house. She gets a break. The kids get to get outside, um, release some steam, get their wiggles out, um, get some energy, play in the sunshine, and it really works out well. So if I were you, I would stay living where I'm living. And then I would just say, you know, in terms of the outdoor play, honey, if you can take him to the park in the morning, three or four days a week, and then I take him to the local park in the afternoon when I get home from work, that would be a much better lifestyle for you than sitting in traffic an hour every single morning and sitting in traffic an hour every single afternoon. To me, it's a lifestyle Mm -hmm. decision, not an affordability decision. That, That makes perfect sense. Uh, actually, I have uh, kind of thought about that, but I kind of convinced myself that, okay, I can take an hour of commute uh, because uh, we we should buy home. The other reason behind that is the way uh, prices are going up right now in our area, it feels that if we stop law for more time uh, without buying home, then we won't be able to afford anything, even, even within one hour of commute. It will be like, just move out of this place and uh, move out of the town, and we don't want to do that. Right. So, so the the emotion of it. So there there are two aspects to consider, and here's kind of just my thinking on housing. It is very common to get yourself in a situation where you are uh, scared of uh, prices are always going to go up, and we're not going to be able to afford and uh, to buy in the future. Uh, I am quite confident. That will not happen, and here's why. It simply won't happen because the price of housing is always driven by wages. The price of housing is driven by wages. Now, there can be longer-term changes. So, for example, used to be that downtown New York City used to be you could live as a a working man, swinging a hammer. A plumber could afford to buy an apartment and live in downtown Manhattan. Well, that's all been pushed out, and that's entirely changed. And the poor people, the low-income earners, have been pushed uh, out of the city center. And the wealthy, high-income elite have taken over the city center. But in general, there still has to be someone to change the pipes. And so there has to be some affordability to housing. So housing is always tied to wages. The only thing that on an ongoing basis can allow housing prices to increase over time is if wages also increase because housing is directly tied to the affordability of housing. So in time, things will change and the local governments have to make changes. What you see when you see the the parts of the, the country that are the most expensive 
you see that all of the, the, the low-income earners have been pushed out of the, the inner city, have been pushed out of the city center. And that causes major problems. And you're starting, I think, finally, a few decades too late, the cities are starting to finally see uh, uh, some changes, and they're starting to loosen up some of the regulations. They're starting to relax some building codes to try to allow builders to build new, new housing to meet some of the problems with demand. So in the long term... I don't think it's possible for the price of housing to just always go up and up and up and be unaffordable. It's possible in the short term because many people feel that fear, but in the longer term, it's not It's not possible. Uh, so, yes, prices could go up, but if I were in your shoes, I would pay – I would look and I would be willing to pay more in order to have the shorter commute just simply for the sake of the lifestyle uh, – of my lifestyle. Um, if the place that you live is truly not affordable – then uh, and it's truly not. Then you should seriously consider looking at some other place to live. Uh, even if if you love Seattle and you say I'm willing to pay it, we'll just go into it knowing that you'd be willing to pay it in the cost of the commute or in the cost of the, the standard of living. But there are jobs in tech all over the place, and the only way that that a place like Seattle in the in in the big picture is going to have lower housing costs is when people start to move and they move to other places which have which have cheaper housing costs. Let me speak quickly about the the family in India and family visiting. So culturally, it's very valuable culturally for you to be able to host your family. And I affirm that. I think that's fantastic. I love the cultural ethic of families being together. If you were to go to India, and stay with family. Mm-hmm. You take your wife and your child and you go to India and you stay with family. You would not expect your Indian family to double the size of their house just so that they could host you for your one-month visit. If you go and visit your family in India, if all they have the ability to do is to lay down a, a simple mat for you to sleep on in the living room, to push the couch back and lay down a simple mat, you would be thankful that you can visit with your family. And it's the same for them coming to you. Now, of course, since you're in the United States, you're earning a higher income, and you want to provide the nicer things for your family. But you can't let this desire to support your family cause you to put yourself in a situation where your finances are hurt, and frankly, your lifestyle is hurt. That two-hour-a-day spent in the car really doesn't work. So here are some suggestions for you. Number one, um, be willing to adjust and be willing to continue to recognize that just the ability for you to provide uh, a place on the floor with your family or a couch for them is perfectly adequate. You can do a few things. If you spend a little bit of money, um, you can buy a very nice inflatable bed. And maybe it's the type of thing that if your parents are coming, you and your wife, while your parents are in town, you give them your bedroom and you and your wife move to the living room on an inflatable bed. Is it comfortable? Not really, but it's a whole lot more comfortable than spending two hours a day in the car um, so that you can go back and forth uh, and sit in traffic. So consider being willing to put them into simpler accommodations. Number two, if you run the numbers on it and you just simply calculate the cost of the insurance on your new house, which will be a pure cost or the cost of the interest payment or the cost of the real estate taxes on a new house compared to where you're living right now, calculate that number and recognize that that's money you'll never get back from living in a house. It's just pure cost. 
If you take that right. and you pr- and you rent a very nice Airbnb in the next the the building that's nearby your house for the times when your parents visit from India or your family visits from India and you rent for a month, even if you rent it for them, you'll still be way ahead financially. Um, you'd be ahead even if you if you if you just got them a room at the local hotel. Now that probably wouldn't give you the the that probably wouldn't give you the uh, benefits you're looking for of being together, of your son being able to interact with your family members when he first wakes up in the morning and at night, etc. So you'd probably rather be together. But don't put yourself in a situation where you're adding a two-hour-a-day commute just so that you can have an extra room that sits empty most of the year, except for the once every two years when your family comes from India. Thank you. That's that's really uh, good to have uh, thought. Think got me thinking in that direction. Uh, I think the primary reason we were looking for is not just for family, but for the kid, uh, and he's uh, making resources available for him to play and all that. But I also agree that uh, going to a park is also an option in that case. So yeah, I, thanks so much for all. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. In summary, I affirm, so number one, I don't think the house that you're considering is unaffordable. I don't think you should consider this on the basis of affordability. You should calculate what you're giving up, what the opportunity cost is that you're giving up. Um, you won't come out, based upon what you're telling me, if your current monthly, um, if your current monthly rental cost is about $1,500 a month, and your new mm-hmm. monthly mortgage cost would be about $3,000 a month. I think mm-hmm. I don't think you'll come out ahead by buying a house. And the reasons for that is simply that I would guess that about $1,500 a month of your new mortgage payment cost would be based exclusively on taxes and insurance, which is not money that's going to grow. You're not building equity when you're paying taxes and insurance. You're just simply paying taxes right. and insurance. Go back and listen. If you've never listened, go back and listen to the series that I did on um, should you buy a house, renting versus uh, versus owning, and calculate the actual costs uh, of that for you. And I think that if you calculate that and you also calculate the things that you don't know as far as how much uh, expenses – um, uh, how much your expenses will be in uh, in fixing things that you don't currently have to fix, making repairs, new mm-hmm. roof, all that stuff. You will come out behind, financially speaking, with buying that single-family house versus your current rental cost. It may still be the right. better thing to do if it gives you a lifestyle improvement. We don't make every decision in life based upon what's going to be the best financial move. If we did, you right. you, you and your wife would be sleeping on the floor of your office, taking a shower in the company bathroom with a, <laughs> you know, pouring water over your head if that were the case, but you're not. So it may be worth it to get it from a lifestyle perspective, but financially you're going to come out um, come out behind in in the scenario you're describing. But I don't think it's unaffordable. Right. I just think you should carefully consider the cost of that two-hour commute. And if I were you, I would wait another year or two until I could save or find something that were closer to my work so that I could have more space for my family to host guests, uh, better space for my son to play, and be still be able to be closer to work. Right. Uh, just one point if we have time uh, on that uh, rent aspect. So the rent that I have is really a deal right now uh, within the area because 
everywhere else uh, surrounding the rents are north of 2500 it's just my place the landlady just doesn't care about it and that's why i have got a deal i don't know how long it is going to be uh, but uh, if she raises rent it or if we just think of changing the you know, apartment to a different one i'm going to pay uh, in the range of 2500 so i would just stay stay living where you're living as long as you can handle it um try to right. adjust a few things like for example if you're willing to pay more money to move outside of town maybe what you should do is it would be cheaper for you to say um to your wife let's de- designate a little bit more money in our budget towards activities for our son maybe let's go ahead and join mm-hmm. the local gymnastics club or let's go mm-hmm. ahead and um spend some money to um to take the weekends and you know every third weekend let's let's plan a trip to the country every third weekend take some of the extra mm-hmm. money in your budget and go ahead and spend it on that need in your family without committing yourself to a house if your landlady were to raise your rent to 2500 then your considerations would change and you would make a fresh decision at that point and now buying the house financially speaking looks much more attractive i think the lifestyle cost is still too high your son needs you mm-hmm. to be there together with him he doesn't need 250 feet of grass in in backyard children in seattle washington do want three and four year old little boys who are only children in Seattle, Washington would here's my I would bet you 5 bucks on this. They don't spend more than a cumulative of an hour to 2 hours per week on a, on average through the winter and everything. They, your your son would not spend more than an hour and a half outside per week on average um to use that backyard. Uh for you to spend an extra 8 to 10 hours a week sitting in traffic so that your son could have a backyard that he could play in for average an hour and a half a week by the time you take winter rainy days all that stuff out i think that would be a a bad lifestyle move uh, but it would change the the consideration if uh, financially speaking it would change the consideration if uh, your landlady changed the rent tanya in maryland welcome to radical personal finance how can i serve you today please Thank you Joshua. Well, first of all, happy new year and thank you for all you do for all of us hungry for practical information and I hope that uh, 2018 will be successful and satisfying thank for you. you and your family. Um and I loved your uh, the answer to your pre- to the previous question. I'm totally uh agreeing with everything you said. I had to our commute before it was awful. <laughs> so my question is about retirement plans that allow for after tax non-Roth. And um just to give you a quick background. So first of all, I'm a business owner, have no employees. have an option to do backdoor Roth conversions. Tanya, hold on one second. When I need hold, to. Hold on one second. Your phone just dropped out right after you said I'm a business owner. So please start again. You said I'm a business owner and go from there. Sure. <laughs> Let me try again. So I'm a business owner. I don't have any employees or partners. So it's just uh right now I'll see sole proprietorship and I have um money to put into retirement beyond just uh 18,000. And I also uh have an option to do backdoor Roth conversions. So these are the things that I am able to do. And my uh goal is uh try to uh use the opportunity to do mega backdoor roth 
And for that, I understand that I need to have a to contribute after-tax non-Roth money. Um, and my question is, how would you go about trying to um, set up a retirement plan, plan like this? As I understand, there are only roughly 8% of retirement plans in the U.S. which allow after-tax non-Roth. But as, a, but as a business owner, I suspect I have many more options compared to if I were a W-2 employee. Well, the way that I would go about it is I would start by calling the advisors that you currently have on your plan. You currently have a, a four, solo 401k established in your business or some kind of qualified retirement plan established? I have a sole for one k um and I called Vanguard with which I have, and they do not allow for this after tax non roth right The short answer to the question is that to do the so so for the for the sake of the audience um very quickly uh, let me explain what it is that we're talking about using the term mega backdoor roth. Uh, under most people believe that the contribution limits to a 401k are about $17,000 per year. I think it's 18 this year, $18,000 per year. Uh, is, uh, hopefully I'm getting my math, my, my recollection on the current number is right. Uh, and that is true because if you were to join a large company and say, how much money can I contribute to my 401k plan? The answer is, if you're under the age of 50, the answer is about $18,000 per year. That's what you can contribute uh, and have deducted out of your, uh, contribute to the, the plan on a pre-tax basis. However, that's not the only standard of contribution that can be uh, calculated in 401k plans. Uh, you the plan can actually accept more money than that if the plan sponsor sets the plan up appropriately. The obvious example would be that if your company uh, matches you on your contribution to the account, they and let's say you put in eighteen thousand and they give you a fifty percent match and they put in nine thousand, you've now. Uh, contributed more more money has been contributed to the plan than the $18,000 limit. And so that second way of calculating the limits comes out to a little bit in excess of $50,000 per year that can be put into a 401k plan. So in theory, you could contribute $18,000 per year to the account. In theory, your employer could make additional contributions. Let's say that your employer contributed $10,000 per year to the account. That would um, bring you up to $28,000 going into the account. And in theory, if the limit were $50,000, it's actually a little bit higher, that would leave about $22,000 available if the plan sponsor would allow the money to go in. And so what you can actually do is you can set it up so that you have a pre-tax contribution to the account of your $18,000. Then you have your employer match. And then if the plan sponsor provides, then you can provide for, you can put an additional after-tax contribution to the 401k. And this would go up to the $53,000 limit. So uh, for if the plan documents are written appropriately, then this can be a huge opportunity. The benefit then of having the money segregated as an after-tax contribution in a 401k is that, in theory, when you leave that company, you can convert your after-tax contribution directly into a Roth IRA. And since you've already paid the tax on the money, 
then you don't have to pay any additional tax when you just roll it over. You just simply convert it over to a Roth IRA. And what you've done effectively is you've built a Roth IRA that has, instead of limiting you to $5,500 per year, has allowed you to put maybe $20,000 or $30,000 into the account, uh, which is obviously a huge uh, huge opportunity when that money could then grow with all the benefits of a Roth, defer, uh, no taxation as the money grows, no taxation when you take it out for retirement, all the other benefits of a Roth IRA. So that is a mega backdoor Roth. At the moment, to the best of my knowledge, it is available, uh, it is possible. Um, however, I expect the tax laws to change. Uh, this did not change in the recent um, in the recent uh, tax overhaul legislation in the United States, but I do expect it to change in the future uh, because, well, I expect it to change in the future. The challenge practically is finding a, it's one thing to construct this in theory, it's another thing to do it in practice uh, because many companies don't actually offer in their plan documents, the plan sponsor doesn't offer the option for you to make after-tax contributions to the 401k. Uh, in addition, it's my understanding, I have never done this for myself, it's my understanding that it's much more challenging to find a sponsor in the solo 401k marketplace that provides um, the service and will ha- and will and, and to find a sponsor. And then Tanya, what you're telling me is that your uh, plan, uh, uh, you're working with Vanguard to run your solo 401k and in working with Vanguard, they're telling you that they're not going to allow you to do that in your solo 401k. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yes. So have you looked for another plan sponsor that would help that would uh, uh, help you to set this up in a solo 401k and would allow the after-tax contribution? I started looking and just basically researching what people write about it, um, and the only thing that I know so far is that large brokerages do not offer it and that there are specialized, um, I don't know how you call them, but companies that provide retirement plans that would be, that that do that. Um, however, um, and, and I have not researched a specific company or called a specific company, but what I gathered from people who use those is that they are most likely more expensive um, and they have limited funds to invest in. So the um, essentially the downside could be that you will be stuck with the investment options they have paying some kind of fees that they ask you to pay. So that could be a wash in the end. Um, but I have not researched a specific company okay. yet. So here's how I'd approach it. Um, I would doubt that most of the solo, and it's my understanding that most of the solo 401k providers, what they're basically doing is they're providing a package document. And this is why um, a company like Vanguard won't won't do it. Uh, they're using a boilerplate document that's saying, okay, you have an individual business. You want to establish a solo 401k. Well, in that context, I'll go ahead and I'll give you the, here's our plan document. I, I used to use this uh, when I was a financial advisor. I used to use this uh, frequently with business owners for setting up a, a SEP IRA, a SEP, Simplified Employee Pension Program, a SEP IRA. The SEP IRA is is the, the accountant and financial advisor's favorite uh, back pocket tool because it's easy to set up, it's very simple. You can keep a boilerplate, uh, a boilerplate 
document that the business owner just simply signs, and it allows contributions after the close of the tax year. Uh, So if I'm meeting with somebody in February and they have a big tax bill for the previous year, well, at least we can sit down and calculate how much could go into the SEP IRA, and they can write that check in February or March uh, and lower their tax bill for the previous calendar year. That's different than a 401k. A 401k, the contributions need to be made before the end of the calendar year. So if you're doing, uh, you know, as we record this, is January of 2018. It's too late to do any planning for 2017, but a business owner could could make a contribution to a SEP IRA in the same way that a an individual can contribute to a traditional or Roth IRA uh, during 2018 for 2017, as long as they do it before the April 15th deadline. But because these are boilerplate documents, a company like Vanguard or any of the companies doesn't want to get into uh, uh, the, the idea of saying, hey, let's set these things up for you with with really interesting ways. So my guess is how I would approach it if I were you, if I were really committed to this, if it's really going to benefit you and serve you, um, I would go ahead and I would uh, research the process of setting the plan up myself. You can uh, individually have the plan document documents written for you by an advisor. You can contact uh, a company that works uh, as a third-party administrator for the the plans. I would go ahead and work through that process of setting it up. And instead of using the boilerplate approach from Vanguard, I would custom write or have written documents um, with a, a third-party administrator and go ahead and establish it in the plan that's appropriate to my, to my company. Uh, I it's hard for me to believe that somebody out there is not offering a TPA is not out there marketing this to small business owners. So a little bit of web searching would, would be in order, but you should be able to do it. There's no technical reason why it's not possible. It's just going to be a matter of either finding somebody who will sell you the documents, uh, who has uh, the the expertise of doing it. That'll probably cost you a couple thousand bucks uh, and or going ahead and setting it up yourself um, using the services of a third-party administrator as you need to and going ahead and establishing a new plan for your business. Once you have that new plan, you've set up the, the appropriate documentation, the appropriate trust, then you could just go back to Vanguard and have them be the custodian of the account. But instead of using their boilerplate solo 401k, you'll be using your customized documents uh, governing uh, your new plan with the segregated accounts. That's how I would approach it. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's very helpful. I think that I will do more research and um, I I was suspecting that I will have to do lots of things on my own with this. It's probably a good thing if I <laughs> technically I I have a let's see what am I a registered employee benefits consultant so I went through this when I was studying for the uh, uh, the that particular designation and technically this would be something where if if an info product does not yet exist some of listeners who are um, uh, who are you know, nerds on the, the details of this, you should go through and establish an info product that you sell for uh, business owners like Tanya uh, to go ahead and and uh, guide them through the process. And if any of you are working with a TPA uh, or consultancy, you, you should go ahead and, and set this up because uh, I've seen in the, in the last year, I've seen articles all over the place on the mega backdoor Roth. And as long as it's still available in the tax code, I think there are a lot of people looking for uh, for information. Tanya, you said you had two questions. Let me go on. I've got one more caller in Hawaii. Let me go on and handle this next caller, and then I'll come back to you, Tanya, in a few minutes for your second question. Uh, got a caller calling in from Hawaii. What's your name, please? And let me know how I can serve you today. Hi, 
Hi, <laughs> this is Laura, and uh, sadly, I had to relocate to Southern California. So <laughs> oh, so sad LA. that you moved from Hawaii to Southern California. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to move back. Um, so I work in an industry where it's possible to work both as a 1099 contractor or as a W-2 wage employee. And with the new tax legislation, um, specifically the part that includes the reduced corporate tax rate to 21%, I think, I'm trying to compare the tax benefits of taking work as a contractor, as a 1099 contractor, versus the W-2 wage employee. How much money and are I you? Make, yeah, how it's much like money a, are you? in the realm of $65,000 a year. And is your household income higher than that? Uh, yeah, it is through some other supplementary income. In excess of 100000 no. Okay. I, I no. it's you don't need to go through and calculate it. Um, it, it's going to be simpler for you. You can calculate it, and I can answer the question. But you're not yeah. going to be affected by the new Tax Cut and Jobs Act in terms of that change, because with an annual income in under a hundred thousand dollars, in effect, yeah. you're not going to be facing much of an effect from um, any changes of income taxation. Your tax rate, the tax bracket that you you are in, is going to be so far below um, the the twenty percent number. By the time you you take your standard deductions, by the time you do just do all mm-hmm. the normal stuff, there shouldn't be any mm-hmm. need for it. Um, the big cost for many people with regard to going ten ninety nine. In general, my advice is take the W two, um, but you need you need something compelling to you to think that you should go the ten ninety nine. So, is your company has they made mm-hmm. have they made you a specific offer? If you go W two, we'll give you this amount, or if you go ten ninety nine, we'll get this other amount. No, um, it's I'm sort of at a crossroads um, on a personal stance, and I I had the LLC it, it was um, formed in Honolulu, mm-hmm. so I I have a single member LLC that's you know eight ten years old, and that I do run some 1099 business through that, and I'm kind of wondering if I should just pursue that exclusively. It just seems like the corporate tax rate is so low that it seems like um, I, I feel, I feel like there's like this, this uh, secret code, you know, I'm like, well, maybe, you know, maybe the suckers are the ones earning personal income because the personal income keeps getting hit over and over and over again. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe the secret to winning is really running all the income through an LLC. So, but you, maybe it doesn't matter at this level. I mean, right. you know, I'd like to think I'm going to be over a hundred thousand in a few years. Well, yeah. When so you, when you start to get, yeah, when when your income starts to go up, and this is not uh, a it's it's this is more just a practical matter, um, not a matter of a specific number. But let's talk. Let's let me talk you through it. Um, so first of all, okay. The number one thing that your company, the company that you're providing services for needs to worry about is, are you a legitimate contractor or are you a legitimate employee? And this is a big Mm -hmm. deal for the company for whom you're providing services because the IRS definition of who is a contractor and who is an employee Mm -hmm. is pretty clear. 
And it's there, and mm-hmm. the IRS doesn't care how much money you're making. They're caring about your duties. So the simple thing would be, do you have other clients other than the company that you're providing services for? How much of your time is spent with that company, et cetera? But that's not your problem. That's their problem. Mm-hmm. But in general, if they need to be, they're the ones, they shouldn't really be offering it to you and saying, well, you know, Laura, you can work for us in either of these scenarios. Which do you pick? They should be sitting down and saying, Laura, you're a contractor or Laura, you're an employee. Uh, and to cover themselves, that's important um, for, for them to do. From your perspective, you need to look at it in terms of the totality of the benefits that you're getting. One big uh-huh. reason for you to consider working as a W-2 employee is to have access to any group benefits that the company offers. And in general, yeah. this is going to be a better move for you because most companies are going to provide some kind of benefits program. Uh, and so if in general, that's going to be a, a good thing for you to, to join, to be able to get access uh-huh. to a group health insurance policy, to get access to a group 401k plan, to get access to group disability insurance, things like that, vacation time. That's going to be usually a benefit for you. Um, Now, not all companies have good benefit programs, and you could make an argument that sometimes you're actually better off setting up your own benefits programs. That's true to a point, but it's but it's much more challenging for you as an individual, um, especially when you're in making about $65,000, much more challenging for you to go and set up all those things as an individual than it is just for you to join their group program. Now, on the flip side, right. there may be benefits for you as a contractor that would be so valuable it would supersede your willingness to work as a W-2 employee. You said, hey, I'd like to go back to Hawaii. Well, maybe the company would be happy to have mm-hmm. you working for them as a contractor, and that would allow you to go back to Hawaii. But if you were an employee, then they would say, no, sorry, Laura, that we want you here in Southern California. Uh, if I were in a job where they said, you've got to be here at this office, this number of hours per week, um, and if you do that, then we'll give you as an employee, employee, or you can go ahead and work with us as a contractor. And if you do that, you can be on the road, you can live wherever you want to live, and we just want you back here for a quarterly meeting. Because mm-hmm. of the benefit of flexibility, I would be very tempted to go in the direction of working as a contractor. And frequently this is the case. Doesn't have to be the case. Uh-huh. There's no reason why you can't work for the company you work for remotely as an employee, but frequently the company will say, well, if you're going to do right. that, we'll pay you on a contract basis. So think about it as it affects your life. Now, uh-huh. from a tax perspective, from a tax perspective, uh-huh. there's really going to be, uh, there, there's not going to be, uh, let's, let's, Clarify. So first of all, let's just say you're simply working and paying taxes as a self-employed person. Uh, ignore the LLC because you can set up your taxation in the LLC to be as a, working as a self-employed sole proprietor or as an S corporation right. or as a C corporation. Right. That's not going to be um, uh, necessarily important. As a, as a self-employed person, you're going to pay self-employment tax. And the f- biggest thing that I see people do, the mistake they make, is they take on the role of working as a contractor. And what they uh-huh. give up is the fact that their employer is going to pay for the employer section of the employment taxes, which is about 7.65% right. of the income. So in that context, you're giving up on a $65,000 income. That's a $5,000 per year um, question. So if they're uh, going uh-huh. to pay you as a contractor, they should be paying uh-huh. you much in excess of $5,000 right, per see. year more for you to work in that scenario. Uh, at 
secondly, sometimes you can have come into the question of, well, are there things that I can deduct uh, if I run my own company? For example, could I deduct the mileage on my car or other business expenses? Travel to Hawaii. <laughs> there you go. Is it possible? In general, the rules on a lot of that stuff are pretty tight. Um, and there's no reason with most of the benefits. So, for example, travel back and forth between California and Hawaii. If the company desires for you to work for them and to work in Hawaii, they can go ahead and they can set that up. If it's done for the benefit of the employer, uh, they can go ahead and set that up and they can provide you with uh, housing expense and they can deduct that as something for them. Mm. So if they're willing to work for you, you can do it on either side. Now, you've got to be a pretty valuable employee for the company to jump through hoops and set things up like that for you. But if you're just working for yourself – all of a sudden, there's not going to be – you're really not going to get that much benefit for most people. If you're going to work from Hawaii but you're going to work from your house, you can only deduct um, your office, your home office expense if you're working as a contractor and what's actually your home office. You can't deduct your whole house. You can't – and by the time mm-hmm. – and that's why I said at the the level of income that you're at right now, uh, it's really mm-hmm. not going to make uh, a benefit for you one way or the other. Uh, it's going to be a okay. whole lot of of of, of – record keeping a whole lot of hassle that unless you said hey i'm going to three hundred thousand dollars a year um right i see then it's just not going to be worth the hassle if they'll take you as an employee stay as an employee if they won't um but you get to be have the benefit of moving back to hawaii then go ahead and move to a a a contractor status or stay on your contractor status okay all right sweet thanks super helpful good (laughs) my pleasure yeah all right, back to Tanya in Maryland. Tanya, you had one more question for me. I got time to take it. Go ahead, please. Sure, thanks, Joshua. So my my second question was about um, knowing what you know about running a business and a new tax code. I know it's uh, still fresh, but uh, um, what are the considerations that you would recommend um, sole proprietors to think about uh, in 2018? when they want to figure out whether they should go S-Corp taxation route or sole proprietorship. And I know that um, there are standard considerations, as for, exam- for example, how much money you make and uh, you know, the difference between the wage that you will set up and, and then the dividends and payroll and so on. But there are also things like pass-through deductions that are new and other things that could be new. So. In general, what what do you think people should research to they still have time until March 15th to do so? Hmm. I am not yet uh, I am not yet clear on the specific impact of some of the pass through, pass through qualified business income uh, and, and the the new deduction that was uh, allowed. Um, I'm not clear enough on it to comment to comment on it. Uh, the new the new Tax Cut and Jobs Act just passed for the end of last year is um, uh, I've still been wrestling with it, try to make sure I understand, make sure the impact. Uh, and it's been very hard for me to see the practical impact. So my answer at the moment is going to simply be I don't know. Um, but I will try if I can. Uh, it is on my list to do a more deep dive from the financial planning impact of it. And as I can understand more fully what has changed and the new planning opportunities, so much has changed that there's going to be a lot of new planning uh, opportunities. And I'm not a primary planner. I'm not a, a tax attorney who's sitting and reading the code uh, and then um, 
I'm not the person who's sitting and reading the code and saying, well, here's what I can apply. Uh, I'm a secondary planner where I'm waiting for the experts who do that and then publish documents on it. I, I consume their documents and their publishing, and I try to articulate it to <laughs> a more layperson uh Number. So as that comes out and as I can more fully understand the practical impact, I'll try to cover that uh, in the future. But my answer for today is I don't know. That's that's no problem. Thank you, Joshua. <laughs> You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, calling in. I appreciate it. I wish, uh, I wish I were brilliant enough to be able to do that, but I'm not. Thank you all so much for calling in for today's Q&A show. Uh, happy New Year, everybody. Uh, we'll be back with you next week with some solo shows. And then uh, next week, plan to do a Q&A show as well. If you'd like to join for a Q&A show during 2018, uh, I would love to have you do that. Today's show, we had three callers. If you want to just chat with me about anything, I'll do my best. This is your best way to have access to, uh, to me. And, and I love doing them. And the audience really enjoys hearing them. And I'd love to have I love this diverse, these diversity of questions. You can talk with me about anything you want. Um, so please go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Sign up to support the show there. I have, uh, I'll be doing a lot more promoting of that this year, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Thank you to those of you who have directly contributed to the show. It's uh, I'm filled with gratitude for you, and I thank you for your support for me and uh, for my efforts here on Radical Personal Finance. Y'all have a great weekend. I'll be back with you next week. This show is part of the Radical Life Media Network of podcasts and resources. Find out more at RadicalLifeMedia.com.